This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. The Olympics are billed as a spectacle, a show of endurance and national pride. But along with the dominant discourse about athletic prowess and international cooperation, there is also a tradition of vigorous protest. And it's not only athletes who make political stands. Often, concerned citizen groups in host cities also turn out in large numbers to protest the Games, just as many attend events as spectators. The Olympics have complicated relationships with host cities. The decision to host the Games is a big one, often skewing public funding in host cities in favor of what some consider a one-time sporting event. And long after medals are handed out and audiences disperse, the host cities spend years paying for the Games. Today, we discuss Olympic protest. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta. We're in a strange time right now. We've just wrapped up with the Olympic Games. And of course, we are a couple of days away from the beginning of the Paralympic Games. And I thought it might be really good to check in with one of the other more interesting stories about the Olympics, which is the history of dissent and protest that accompanies these games. It is often a, a landmark for a lot of social issues to coalesce where athletes and, as I said in the, uh, in the introductory monologue, a lot of citizen groups also have a lot of things that they want to either complain about or a lot of issues that they want to raise. To help me unpack some of these issues and to provide a bit of context, I'm joined today by Helen Lenski. Helen is Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto and a social justice educator and researcher. She's written several books that take a critical look at the IOC and at the Olympics. She joins me today from Toronto. Helen, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you with us on the program. Thank you, Joita. Good to be here. So, Helen, we've just wrapped up the Olympics, as I mentioned, and they were some they were pretty strange as Olympics go. And of course, we are a couple of days away from the Paralympic Games. How are you feeling about all of it? Should those games have actually taken place? Uh, short answer, no. I'm surprised that they did actually proceed as planned. Uh, the aftermath we, we're yet to see because we don't know whether this so-called Olympic bubble has actually burst and whether the COVID cases within Olympic villages and Olympic venues have actually spilled out into the population of Tokyo. But we do know that the number of COVID cases in Tokyo and the city have just plummeted, have just uh, skyrocketed rather mm-hmm. with the Olympics in town. So why is it? I mean, the threat of COVID was real last summer. That's why they postponed it. And it was still very much real this summer. Why was the government of Japan so eager to proceed with the Games? The government of Japan was actually not very eager, but um, some a very small minority of politicians uh, spoke out and said that they felt cornered, that it was a lose-lose situation for them if they insisted on cancelling the Games, um, particularly at Tokyo organisers, um, Tokyo politicians. There would be a huge price to pay, financial price, um, 
that would be spread out among the Japanese population, and it would have been an enormous penalty they would have incurred. On the other hand, when they proceeded with the games, they were criticized globally for not telling the IOC, no, we don't want to host them. The host city contract pretty much guarantees that the IOC has all the power and the host city has almost zero. So it would have to be, as as Richard Pound so quaintly said, an Armageddon uh, to stop them. In other words, uh, uh, some kind of uh, what we used to call act of God, uh, some external force that um, would be covered by the contract and the insurance and so on. That didn't happen. Just uh, the, the fact of COVID was not sufficient to get Tokyo off the hook, and they had to proceed. You alluded to the relationship that many host cities have with the IOC. Can you, for for those of us who aren't as familiar with it, what does that relationship actually look like? How much power does the host city have? I mean, it is the host city that chooses to make the bid in the first place. Yes, and in theory, they go in with their eyes open. So eight years ago, when cities were bidding for the 2020 Games, now in 2021, uh, those host cities knew what the costs would be. They knew that they had to build uh, a certain number of specific facilities, many of which would be absolutely useless to their citizens once the Olympics left town. Um, They're they're locked into providing those facilities. Um, They're locked into... The contract pretty much locks them in under almost any circumstances and there's very little power left for them. They do think that, as well as the legacy, that they will make some kind of profit um, and they'll be in tangible benefits. That's one of the favourite bits of rhetoric that the Olympic industry throws around through its spin doctors, that if you are the host city, your city will now be on the world map. It will be a world-class city. There will be an enormous boost in national pride, civic pride, and so on. And... That kind of sways a lot of bid committees and the citizens, although a different trend that we've been seeing in the last couple of decades is citizens in a potential bid city demanding a referendum, and the results Mm -hmm. of those referendums are quite often a negative. Um, Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC, is really quite annoyed that there is this new trend, and he's publicly said, uh, why do you have to have a referendum about this sort of thing that's seven years in advance? Well, the answer is, in a democratic country, citizens have the right to a voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that was striking about the games in Japan in addition to the the actual events, there was actually quite a bit of coverage of citizen protests. As as you noted, the cases skyrocketed and people were very upset about this protesting outside of venues. Is this just a one-off thing to have people protest during the games? I'm not even talking about athletes. I'm just talking about ordinary people. Or is this something that we see actually quite often when the games come to town? We've seen it in the past. I think the difference this time is it was probably a bit more widespread and the global media paid more attention to it. But there were these kinds of protests in Sydney before the Sydney 2000 Games, um, in Vancouver before the Winter Olympics of 2010. Um, In democratic countries, there are routinely protests before and during 
the Olympics. So certainly because of COVID um, and because the world could see this kind of powerless um, city in the face of the the enormously powerful IOC and Olympic industry, um, there was a lot of interest around the globe and all, the entire globe, of course, is, is affected by the pandemic. So um, there was that prompting the increased public and media interest. But on the other hand, the um, Olympic industry spin doctors anticipated that there would be this kind of um, outcry and they worked hard at promoting these myths about the holding Tokyo Olympics would heal the world, it would unify the world, it would uh, help heal us from this pandemic crisis and so on. Um, a lot of waffle about really not based in reality. Um, you know, the Olympics are now behind us, uh, as it were, but the Paralympic Games are about to start in a couple of days. They start on August 24th. Um, how concerned are you about the Paralympic Games, bearing in mind that in a lot of ways, um, people with disabilities don't have the same visibility when it comes to parasport? And at least based on the things that I've read, it was people with disabilities themselves who pushed for uh, inclusion in the Olympics. And that's why we end up with the Paralympic Games. Should those go on? How concerned are you that those will go off without a hitch? The reports that I read about the Paralympic athletes um, seem that their vaccination program was going quite well, that um, because they're vulnerable, having disabilities of various kinds that make them eligible to compete as Paralympians, um, there's been a bit more attention paid to their vaccination status. And there are fewer of them than the mm -hmm. Olympic athletes, I think 5,000 versus 11,000, something like that. Although they're not alone, they're coming with their coaches and, and the rest of the entourages that are supporting the individual athletes and teams. So, yes, I'm, I'm as concerned as I was about the Olympics in terms of the impacts on the athletes and the impacts on the people of Tokyo. And if the hospitals are continuing to experience pressure, as we've seen reports about, um, that adds to the problem, having yet another mega sporting event on their doorstep in a couple of weeks. Speaking of the athletes, one of the reasons that people often give in opposition to anyone who protests the games, um, whenever you know there's a protest, the, there's a common sort of statement made in opposition that, oh, you just, you hate the athletes. You don't want to support our athletes who work so hard. I mean, we should even go ahead with these Tokyo games because athletes have been training and they deserve their chance to try and medal and reach the podium. How do you respond to some of those arguments when they come up? Uh, it helps that some athletes themselves see right through this kind of argument and say, why would I want to risk my health, in, in this particular case with COVID, why would I want to risk my health and then go back to my family and risk their health if I'm carrying the virus? Um, there, so there was some support for the critique of, of holding these games on the part of athletes, not very much, admittedly. But, um, yeah, that argument also is applied quite effectively to boycotts. The minute you say the word boycott, some Olympic official says, boycotts only hurt athletes. Now, true, they hurt athletes um, in the sense that they're 
training and their commitment um, has been is in jeopardy if there's a boycott and they're kept home as we saw from the one in 1980 I think it was but the bigger picture there are some responsible athletes who would um, support the critiques certainly there was in attempt to boycott Sochi 2014 because of the anti-gay legislation that was enacted in Russia the year before. And uh, for their part, a lot of LGBTQ organizations call for boycotts while others said boycott the sponsors because that hurts their the money side of it, the, the pocketbook, way more than a boycott that is aimed at shutting down that particular Olympics and therefore not giving the athletes a chance to compete. So um, there were some quite effective uh, actions involving Coca-Cola and some of the other big Olympic sponsors to try to get them to exert pressure on the IOC and for the IOC then to exert pressure on Russia to make it not to rescind the legislation, they didn't think that would happen, but to guarantee that LGBT athletes and spectators would be safe in Russia. On the other hand, um, the world saw the protest conducted by Pussy Riot, the um, Mm -hmm. rebel group, and the world saw the security guards that were employed to keep protesters away from Sochi events and these were Cossack security guards with whips who were actively whipping uh, the Pussy Riot members and those images flashed around the world and I'm still a bit stunned that there wasn't absolute global outrage at this very visual image of a totalitarian regime and how it uh, persecuted its citizens. I'm Joita Gupta, and with me today is Helen Lenski, who is Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto. We're talking about the history of protests during the Olympic. For a lot of people, they're really taken aback when you tell them that in less than six months now, we'll actually be dealing with the Winter Games, and those will be coming up in February of next year. And coincidentally, given China's human rights record, but also some of the the tensions that are rife within uh, the Canada-China relationship at the moment with the two Michaels who are still being held in detention, there have been calls made to boycott those particular games. And one of the arguments that's been made in opposition to a boycott is that, yes, it not only hurts athletes, but it also takes away from the raison d'etre for the games, which is to raise social issues and to provide some prominence to these social issues. It's certainly the kind of argument that someone like Bruce Kidd had made at the University of Toronto. <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, <laughs> what do you make of that argument that, you know, just by boycotting the games, we're stepping away from what the games are meant to be all about, which is international cooperation and raising the human rights issues in a, in a platform when the world is watching? It's not a platform. Um, and if it, to the limited extent that it is, it's not the only platform for people to raise, uh, to protest, raise awareness about the Chinese treatment of Uyghurs, the, the, con- the continuing situation with the two Michaels, China's uh, repressive regime in Hong Kong. The world knows about these issues and we don't need an Olympics in order to get some airtime uh, in media or whatever. Those protests have been going on for years 
And the the rhetoric about um, international peace and friendship and understanding, really, that has been critiqued by so many of my uh, Olympic studies colleagues around the globe. Um, the so-called Olympi Olympic ideals go very little past the piece of paper that they're written on. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've heard a lot about in the news is, yes, we acknowledge that the IOC has problems. We are all set to reform the IOC so it will be better, more transparent, more accountable. How effective have these reform efforts actually been? They came up with Agenda 2020 several years ago, and that ostensibly was a major effort at reform. And similarly, 20 years ago, uh, after the bribery and corruption scandals, there were all sorts of reforms around who got to inspect host cities and it would no longer be every single IOC member and his or her, usually his uh, family and uh, friends and so on, who would then get expensive gifts as bribes from the competing bid cities. In theory, that was... Uh, cleaned up after 1999 and 2000. In practice, though, there's at least two very, very publicized examples, and one uh, was a book written by Tony Blair, former Prime Minister of the UK, who talked about the kind of behind-the-scenes wheeling and dealing uh, that he did with his friend Berlusconi in Italy, who said, uh, do you really want the London Olympics in 2012? And Blair says, oh, yes, please. And he says, I'll, I'll talk to my IOC members and see what I can do. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, London got 2012 Olympics. Uh, John Furlong, the CEO and head of the Vancouver Bid Committee, said in his memoir, oh, this, that was in Tony Blair's memoir, so very public. Um, mm -hmm. John Furlong in his memoir said... Um, that he had talked to the Russian team and said, if you support us for these games in 2010, we'll give you technical support for your Sochi bid in 2014. And the Sochi bid was successful. So this is not cleaning up the process, the bid process. This is not reform. This is not transparency and honesty and uh, you know, freedom from bribery and corruption. This is just more of the same. Hmm. Uh, speaking of the bid process, one of the things you noted earlier in our conversation is that in many potential host cities, they're actually having referenda to decide on whether they should even uh, host the games at all. But in general, there seem to be fewer cities that are putting in a bid uh, for the Olympics. Um, is the model that we have right now unsustainable? Do we need to think about other options, maybe just having permanent host cities so everyone's not having to put up large amounts of money to uh, you know, to, to have all these facilities that may or may not get used afterwards? The IOC uh, anticipated that problem because they saw the, the dwindling numbers of, of potential bids. And part of this Agenda 2020, and it's not a part that I actually noticed when I scrutinised it for the Olympic book, my last year's book, The Olympic Games, A Critical mm -hmm. Approach, I looked at this Agenda 2020 in a fair amount of detail, but what passed me by was the IOC decided that for the 2032 games, it could just allocate those games to its favourite city without any competition from other cities. And so they just handed 2032 Summer Olympics to Brisbane, Australia. 
and the rumours about what happened behind the scenes and the fact that a very senior IOC member, uh, John Coates, was is currently the um, head of the Tokyo Coordination Commission, so a very powerful person in the IOC and mm-hmm. somebody who was disappointed that Brisbane didn't get a previous Games when it was bidding. So these are rumours in mainstream media and social media. Um, who knows how much truth is in them, but it isn't transparent, is it? Because mm-hmm. uh, there was no competition. It was just announced, OK, Brisbane looks really, really good. A few weeks later, OK, we've given it to Brisbane. But what about this idea? Because people have talked about it, right? That, okay, there's a lot of expenses attached to these games. Perhaps we should just elect one city to host the summer games and mm. have another permanent host for the winter games. Would that sort of deal with the critics who say that these games leave behind a legacy of debt in host cities, if there was just the one host city? It would be an enormous burden for the per- the, the poor pit- city and the poor people in that city who, who get to have this as a permanent home for the Olympics because every four years for summer or winter um, they would have this influx of of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tourists. They would have to maintain these expensive facilities in between the four-year cycles or during the four-year cycles. Uh, And, for example, Canada's ski jump in Calgary following the Calgary Olympics apparently cost an enormous amount of money to maintain and can't be used as a recreational facility because it's way too dangerous. You have to be a high-performance ski jumper to risk dropping off the top of this mountain sort of thing. Um, So it's just not feasible to have a permanent host city. Uh, You know, we've just got a few minutes left, and one of the things I've been wrestling with is what does a viewer do? Say you're at home watching the games. On the one hand, you want to be entertained. You want to cheer for your athletes. On the other hand, you may be conscientious about uh, the troubles associated with the IOC. You may be someone who's very concerned about the legacy of debt that these games leave behind. How do you reconcile that as someone, just an average person, watching the games at home? Yeah, I certainly cannot compartmentalize, and it puzzles me how people can. I look at gymnastics, and I think of the U.S. team doctor um, sexually harassing hundreds of girls and young women. I look Mm -hmm. at the Australian swimmers and think of the coaches who have sexually harassed those girls and young women. It's all thoroughly documented. How could that possibly... Um, sort of be put aside as you view the spectacle. I just cannot see how one could do that. What is the future of the games? Do you what would what would you like to see change? Oh, I'd like to see them stop, but uh, that's not not realistic. So, I guess um, my colleagues who are Olympic critics and the media who are Olympic critics, um, I'd like to see all of us continuing to apply pressure to the Olympic industry so that we may see some small changes in the future. Helen Lenski, thank you very much for speaking to us today. It was a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Helen Lenski is Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto. She's a social justice educator and the author of several books that take a critical look at the Olympics. If you missed any of my conversation with Helen, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. You can also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse, and I occasionally write a 
a blog post, if I have something burning that I want to say afterwards. I'd like to thank Helen Lenski for being on the program today. Our technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.